0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our first ever episode of The Other 50. As Brett and I were talking last week, the reason why we really wanted to do the show is because we want to highlight all the amazing and fascinating and just ass-kicking people in financial services who we just want to feature all the wonderful work they do, hope that you will get inspiration from their stories. We're calling it The Other 50 because Let's just be honest. There are 50-50 of men and women, but how often do you actually see women on stage? How often do you see them in the C-suite? How often do you hear them being featured in various publications or panels other than women in fintech? Do you ever hear people say men in fintech or men in financial services? No. Do you see those headlines in papers? Nope. So what we want to do the show, we want to feature all these people as the work, the amazing work that they're all doing. Not so much so, it's the gender. So to kick us off, we have Gela. Come on. If we're talking about amazing people in FinTech, you cannot start
1: without talking about
0: Gela. So welcome to our show. <laughs> Thank you,
1: Theo. Um, I have to laugh because yeah, it's a really weird decision to kick off your entire series with me um but i'm honored and i hope i don't let you down and i still giggle at the fact that um yeah i'm still let in this industry that people still let me around i can't believe they haven't kicked me out yet so <laughs> just oh, on. come on
0: <laughs> if any one of you have ever met Gella, you would not forget her either right i mean you're just i i i i don't think there is an adjective that we can use to describe you that would do it justice
2: no i think the fact that she has Gela, and everybody knows who we're talking about, it's enough. But it's Gela Baskovits. Is that correct? Uh, Gela Baskovits.
1: <laughs> but you know, just call me Gela. Just call me. Just call me. Exactly.
2: Dave. Just call me.
1: which is how you, you
0: Gela.
2: I like so
1: Gela. I like that. I like that.
0: Yes, Theo. Yeah. <laughs> So there is something I, I, I am very, very curious about, which i can 't believe that I never asked you. Um, you are if you people look in your profile, you call yourself the fintech fanatic. You started off as an economist though it, it does' not sound like you know a little bit on on two different ends of the spectrum, so tell us how how did you start as an economist and how do you end up doing what you 're doing right now Well, I think
1: it to me, it actually has a really elegant full circle sort of thing. I started out in regulatory economics for telco and other utilities, um, fresh out of, out of uni at a very young age. And I had a conversation with my my father about law school because that was my initial aim. He's like, are you really excited about law school? I'm thinking "No, I need a few more years. I'm really, really green under the gills. And he's like, well, why don't you do something Practical, little will kind of get you there in the meantime. And we looked at each other and he says, economics. And I said, economics. And oddly enough, it started an entire love affair with this whole notion of resource allocation and all of these calculations and graphs and slides and marginal utility, this marginal utility, that. And I even studied um, quite a bit of socialism and Marxism and enjoyed myself immensely. But ended up in a um, doing an internship with the Division of Public Utilities, and then ended up working at the Commission after I was done with that. And at the time, we were going through um, deregulation for telecommunications. Ended up also working on cost models that were eventually partly adopted by the FCC and the state utilities um, in the U.S. Uh, the hybrid cost, the hy- the benchmark hybrid cost proxy model, long title, but there was something really fascinating about it because it was it was the policy and the modeling and the lateral thinking about how do you actually encourage competition and yet at the same time give the end customer the service that they're needed that they need and is required in fact there's a mandate called the universal service mandate that requires a cross subsidization to allow for everyone in rural in rural areas and hard to reach areas to have access to tele- to a telephone So during the late 90s, this was all happening and I was fascinated by it. And, you know, things happen. I keep uh, keep in the industry and then um, slightly early midlife crisis, I go back to school and work on art history and then start brokering art and playing around and kind of got out of um, utilities for a bit and then got approached um, about an opportunity with Oracle. And as I joined Oracle, eventually I got into insurance and it was more on the sales side, but it was looking at the impact of technology on improving, you know, and customer results fine. But I got introduced to this insurance space early on, and then it morphed a bit into financial services. And I got recruited by a company called Zaffin, who were working on dynamic pricing and billing solutions. And the funny thing is that dynamic pricing solution in and of itself was just right back in my sweet spot, took me back to my early career. And and I had a, a very um, soft spot for it and the company in my heart, and it was just a perfect fit. And even though I wasn't actually working on the build of solution, um, looking at how it impacted how banks were, doing pricing based on relationships and rewarding the customer for their uh, their loyalty and their allegiance and trying to find a way to, to, to make the customer um, lifetime benefit actually manifest itself better. It really fit into some of that old universal service mandate stuff that I was familiar with from telecommunications, and that sparked the interest. And from there, it was just this, oh, my word, I hadn't actually looked at the way money fundamentally moves or works and it got me fascinated with that and then when you intersect it with technology and it was just a reminder of what I'd already been through but it felt so I don't know what to say it's like this romantic affair that you've had over and over again you keep going back to this thing and you can't quite finish the affair even though you've decided to maybe you know be in a relationship with somebody else this is this temptation and it's just like that it's a temptation to come back to it and there you go and that's how I got to to be fanatically passionate about financial technology. And quite frankly, I'm slightly obsessed with the philosophy of money anyway. I find it an interesting thing to play with. So it it's it ticked all of my geek boxes. It was familiar and romantic in its own way. And at the end of the day, economics and, and modeling kind of runs the world. Even the finance, you know, excuse me, lubricates the mechanisms. The economic modeling is what actually kind of the structure around it and requires that that grease. So, yeah, long story short.
2: So macro or micro? I mean, it sounds like you're primarily focused on macroeconomics and sort of the society role of money, but you know, when it comes down to it, the conversations that we have with people and their kitchen tables and how they sort of deal with the realities of money, I think is really interesting to explore on occasion. So do you get into that yeah. part too?
1: Yeah, there, there's there's the micro when you're looking at, um, say, a particular line of business or a product that you're uh, restructuring, or if you're looking at a fintech and how they actually can deliver their business model, that's very micro. And then you're looking at the ND impact on the customer that's that's using the service what does this actually do for their uh, overall health and wellness at a very a micro level very personalized level at the same time when we pull back I think it's very necessary to, to look at those macro trends because macro trends will ultimately and I hate saying this trickle down to the kitchen table so how do we structure that's quite the macro- a loaded term isn't it It is, right? (laughs) So how do we structure the macro that we can minimize the harm at the micro level and or, or improve at the micro level? That's, that's the whole thing. You can't have one without the other. I don't think they're divorced.
2: I think, you know, one of the the things that you kind of touched into was you had studied a lot of different sort of economic systems. And I think one of my favorite classes that I took at Berkeley was about Soviet economics. And Mm -hmm. it's probably not surprising that the business school offers a Soviet economic course, but it's fascinating to look at how other economies are structured. And, you know, this whole conversation around capitalism and sort of the next iteration um, and China versus Soviet, you know, sort of style of socialism. And so I think it's, it's, Always time to sort of revisit um, the economic forces in a society, so let 's jump here though um, mm. you are are always on a plane or a train or an automobile or however you get around um, but you you go around and you talk at conferences and you get asked to speak at different corporates and you know different parts of the ecosystem. Where are you going lately like tell us some of the places you've been and some of the places you really want to go back to. Let's let, you know, let's set up
1: some more gigs for Gala. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Your check will be in the mail. The dink dink. Um, I got, I had a, an amazing opportunity to spend a week in Japan. And I know you've done this as well, Brad, looking at, God, was great. at their access to Tokyo program it was amazing. Um, so that was, that was a wonderful way to spend part of my summer. And I have to admit, I, I, Although I thought the, the little talking robots were cute, I probably had the most fun sitting through the regulatory sessions and their open banking model. And I know that some of the, my, my colleagues that were there with me were not as enthused as I was, but I was like a kid in a candy store. Um, and I had actually, it was a week before last, I was in Riyadh, had an amazing opportunity to debate the chairman of Samba, which is one of the largest financial institutions Um, about the future of banking and is traditional banking dead? And of course my, you know, my end position, of course, is that Yes, it is. But banking or financial services will exist. But the format and the the framework that we currently are attached to will not exist in a few years that we have to be able to evolve and fundamentally adapt to um, the way the market moves, especially since markets move with no respect to the institution or the institution's culture and they'll demand what they demand. And if the institution can't respond fast enough, then it deserves to um, wither or transform itself. So that was that was a lot of fun. I just got back from Milan as well, um, talking about the impact of uh, global regulation on innovation and why it is absolutely no excuse to blame regulation for not transforming or for not making more effort to disrupt your own business model, cannibalize your own lines of business. I am headed to Sochi next week uh, to talk about uh, the future of finance and social engineering and the humanity component and empathy component in product design. After that, I will be in Melbourne for uh, FinTech Australia, uh, their week of um, intersect. And we'll be talking open banking amongst many other things. And after that, I'm in Abu Dhabi for the ADGM Uh, fintech summit and again more open banking more ai more regulatory policy and after that i'm in luxembourg to talk to a group of women entrepreneurs and that's october wow
0: when are you going to come back to the u.s
1: (laughs) okay Seriously, I ask myself all of the time. I have no idea. I I don't have everything else that I have booked through the end of the year is in Europe or the GCC. It's crazy. We miss you here. I know. It's funny. It's funny being an American on the road, too, I have to say. Um, And it's funny being an American, yeah, who doesn't live there and being on the road. And and that's quite an interesting thing. Um, But, you know, I have family. In the States, so I imagine there will be a trip very soon because I deserve to see my mom and dad.
2: I think that exactly. the first time you and I met, Gala, was in Las Vegas. I think. Do Here's you remember
1: sitting at the Yardbird having a crazy conversation that neither of us expected? Yes. Yeah, I remember.
2: No, I, it, was, um, it was one of those simpatico moments where, you know, you realize that, you know, you, you need to talk more to this person um, because I think <laughs> our, our views about, you know, the world of banking and, and other things, I think, are very, very much in line. Um, but the last time both of us saw you, I think, was at Money um, 2020 in Copenhagen, or in uh, Amsterdam, right?
1: Yes, it was the summer. It was in June. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it was raining. I
2: just remember the rains.
1: I know. Oh, it was an absolute torrential downpour one of those nights. It was absolutely, I couldn't believe how much water was left on the cobblestones. It was I think Aww. it was
0: after you guys shared the stage too. That was quite an evening with uh, Spiros. And guys. <laughs>
1: that might've been the night. <laughs> no, but yeah, it's the funny thing is, is I feel like I feel like this is such a small world that even though there's a lot of time that passes between seeing people and seeing certain friends that they're we're also connected we're always sharing ideas we're always bouncing stuff off of one another and the evils of social media are one thing but the grace of social media it keeps us connected consistently and it doesn't feel like we spent that much time apart i just i miss the cuddles honestly i miss the cuddles i'm cool with the conversation because i get it all the time but i miss the cuddles I miss the
0: money 2020 cuddles I get from you. We need yeah, well, to we, more. yeah, well,
1: you, you know, I, I like that when you, you know, you climb on my lap and you put your arms around my neck and I get a little squeeze. It's amazing. <laughs> We we have photographic evidence of this. Too. <laughs> All right, we're
0: not tweeting that back out. Um, let's switch subject. This is a good time to switch it. Um, it's because uh, trust me, the, the world cannot bear two of us together too often. Uh, I think it would. So, um, let's True. talk about FunTech Globo. Uh, tell us a little bit more. About what what FemTech Global is, that's what you founded. That's you know part of the passions we we all share. But what's going on, and what's the latest, and
1: um, what do we need to know? Well, uh, there's been a little hiatus, but it's um, about establishing networks and local chapters for women and allies um, to come together to be supportive and actually talk about some of the challenges they face in their uh, in their respective jobs at their uh, firms. What they're doing for policy-wise, what they're seeing in terms of pay and family leave, um, navigating some of the politics, um, being a mentor and finding a mentor or a sponsor, um, those sort of things. So it's a collective community that that locally can get together, but are connected to other chapters across the globe. So um, I find that in this industry we do travel a lot, or at least we get um, a chance to to see parts of the world because the industry is quite small but it's so interconnected and it's always really nice to have another set of friendly faces and another set of support when you travel so it's an opportunity for them to connect and also think about how they can promote each other's business and commercialize what they're doing with one another so need fundraising, need investment, um, need to find talent. Uh, you know, need to bounce some ideas off of people, need introductions to clients. It's about facilitating all of that. Lately. Um, the thing that I am working on with Femtech is aligning it with the women's economic imperative, which is, um, something I'm actually really, really just stoked about. It was started by Dr. Margot Thomas and Margot is, um, an amazing, amazing woman she happens to be um, let me give you her, her, her bio really quickly she 's phenomenal um, thing is is that Margot is uh, she comes out of a career with the United Nations and the World Bank. she was all about at the World Bank helping establish um, emerging markets uh, financial systems um, in fact, what was really cool is she spent a lot of time in Belgrade um, after the war and if you remember my last name that has a that has a, a very close place in my heart uh, so we have that in common but she finished up her appointment as the chief Secretariat for the UN secretary general's high level panel on women's economic empowerment and out of this out of her work she's established the women's economic imperative we have a conference coming up in November in Edinburgh that's bringing thought leaders together policymakers activists um, entrepreneurs and technologists to commit to actually making an impact on women's economic issues and recognizing the need for more investment in healthcare and education, entrepreneurship, and and equal rights. So, focusing on this and talking about um, what I'm contributing to is is making sure that fintech actually brings the conversation around to finance. And since finance underpins health policy and education policy and pretty much everything else in industry how we can start looking at it differently um, from a financial perspective to support this the, these different facets of bringing together um, a fuller program that, that empowers more women but economically empowers them because they are an undertapped asset. And if we look at emerging markets, we have evidence over and over again of a dollar or a rupee invested in a woman small business entrepreneur has a massive 5x impact on the economic well being of her family and her community. And why we're not looking at this as an economic growth engine is beyond me. So, working with Margot to make sure that happens amongst some other groups, but that's where Femtech is at the moment.
0: We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore and innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us.
2: In in terms of um, sort of the impact, you know, we, we focus a lot, especially through things like this podcast and really bringing up these issues to light and, you know, women's finance, um, small business, entrepreneur finance, uh, the ways that, you know, banks aren't focused on the longevity economy. There's three or four or five different areas that make economic sense from the banking standpoint, but it just, it seems like banks are focused far too much on millennials and Gen Z and the next sort of batch of customers that they could, you know, sort of sell credit products to. Uh, If there was, you know outside of perhaps having more allies in the space than actually um, act on both sides of our gender to enable um, a more focus of not just women's issues but everyone uh, to make banking better what other things in, in banking or fintech would, would you kind of change if you could
1: I would well right now I'm slightly obsessed with um, the data science of credit risk and fair and equal access to credit, non-discriminatory access to credit. And looking at how all of our digital footprints can inform those models differently. And what are we, what are the assumptions that we're so attached to that we don't want to change our risk governance modeling or the things that we track and the things that we consider relative to credit risk. And looking at how we structure products differently that make it accessible, that still has a financial health and wellness component to it, but doesn't necessarily drive um, consumption and consumption that is unsustainable consumption. So how do you, how do you find that balance? I don't know, but it's a, it's something that I'm, I'm quite interested in and um, have uh, have had the pleasure of exploring some of that with the chairman of F data, Gavin Littlejohn. I know, you had a chance to to sit with him, Brad, um, in Amsterdam earlier this year, and talk a little bit about the Global Center of Excellence for Open Finance and what he's doing with that. And part of that mission is to promote financial inclusion, and it's looking at the at the credit side of things. And now that we're looking at customer data rights, and we have all of these different discussions around the liability of who manages that data and and how we can actually commercialize it for the end customer. All of those different discussions are coming to will be coming to a frothy head at the, you know, in the coming year, year and a half. And how do we look at that ethically to promote financial wellness, but also have equal opportunity and, and fair access to credit? At the same time, how do we restructure products and how do we start to improve and include more people in this, especially since they're such underserved markets. And we can look at it from a cultural and geographic perspective. We can look at it from an emerging market perspective. we can look at it for gender, race, ethnicity, and orientation perspective. But how do we kind of level set this? Because the current structure of privilege doesn't work anymore. And it's also a very narrow segment of the population that has privilege that can continue to drive the economy the way it does. And if we're going to grow economy and improve the quality of lives across the board for the seven plus billion people that exist, we need to understand the untapped potential of those markets who've been neglected. And they're the economic growth engines. And it benefits everybody if they if they grow and if they prosper. And it benefits them most of all, I think from a from an empathy and humanitarian perspective is the most important thing.
2: And 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 people uh... Listening, if if they ever have a chance to meet you, um, you you brought up Gavin Littlejohn, and I would say that my conversation that you sort of set up with him uh, and I in Singapore, I believe, was mm-hmm. something that really opened my eyes up to kind of the way that data is going to play into open banking. Um, mm-hmm. And so, if if you're talking to Gela and she says you really need to talk to X person, just go talk to that person. Um, again, what Gavin and and his team are doing at data and everything else. Uh, is really going to change the dynamic of banking in the next 10 years. And I think data is going to be at the heart of that. So um, excellent, excellent point.
1: Yeah. I think in terms of what I would change, it's it's actually having more conversations about the ethics and morality of what we're doing in this industry. And um, a lot of it maps to data. So the ethics and morality of data use, data commercialization, data custodianship and privacy. And of course, if you know me, you know, I rant about privacy. Like it's, you know the next greatest thing since sliced bread because it is, and yeah, I think uh, I think we need to move quicker to start to commercialize privacy for our own customers. That will have the most value, and I think the sooner we move to that model, the better for everyone. That, and I think we should we should have more cats in in fintech.
2: Let's talk about cats, and let's talk about. <laughs> phones <this> <laughs> You know, because you, you've had me on stage now at least two or three times and we talk about Schrodinger's cat. Um, tell me how that came to be and, you know, how many iterations of this, you know, is the cat alive or dead have we had on stage now?
1: I don't know, but I have to say it's the most apt uh, metaphor for, for banking as an industry, right? I mean, we're going through deregulation. We're going through um, a change that has been catalyzed by by technology, and we don't know what it's looking like. We're still playing guessing games, and we've got sandboxes as proof. You know, we've got to experiment before we take things to market. We're we're going through a, a change, and do we really know if this version that we're crafting today is going to keep banking as we understand it alive tomorrow? And the whole thought experiment of Schrodinger's cat is just—it's an apt metaphor for it. We don't know until we quote unquote, open the box and we're opening banking. So we're cracking up the tech stock, but we're the, cracking up the business model as well. We don't know if it's viable until it actually goes into production and it goes into market and the market will feed back that, that, um, that verdict. So yeah, I have a slight uh, preoccupation with quantum physics as well. And it just kind of was the thing that stuck in my head. And I don't know how many iterations because there are millions of cats and millions of boxes that we don't know if we're alive or dead yet. Just pick your box.
2: I just, I just remember, <laughs> yeah. you know, being with you and, and Drew and some other folks uh, on a stage in Singapore, and we had just had makeup put on, which was a new thing for me. Uh, and, and we're, I'm still like, you know, thinking about, you you basically said, we're just going to get on stage and we're just going to talk. And I'm like, well, no, I don't, I normally think about what I'm about to say. And you're like, no, 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 it's going to be fun. <laughs> so we're up there with Lita and Drew and others. Uh, and <laughs> the first time I did this, I'm like, okay, what are we going to talk about? And then we had this like (laughs) debate that just happened sort of organically about Mm. cats and whether they're alive and dead. And I've seen this now, you do this with like a bunch of different people in different geographies and it's just the funnest thing. And that was probably one of my most fun times on stage just because of the way that you moderate. So, you know, again, keep pushing that idea and keep pushing people's thoughts um, no matter what geography you find yourself in.
0: That's one of his favorite, because he keeps talking about it almost every single time before we go on stage. He's like, you know, by the way, the time in Singapore with Gela, that was the best.
1: (laughs) Oh, man, because it was the best. We had such a good, actually, that trip was amazing. That was such a good trip. And there were, it was the people, right? I think actually on stage, it comes down to the voices that you have. And can you can you ask the questions that actually make them pause that they don't have a pat answer for? And you did think on stage. That's the point, Brad, like you thought about it, but you thought about it um, much more quickly and, and in the moment and it feels much more like you're having a very heated uh, discussion with friends over, over a cocktail or you're, you know, arguing with your spouse in, in, in the car. Like, you go back and forth because you need to get those points in. And the whole point is to showcase the whole issue. A lot of the stuff that we're talking about and a lot of the questions that we seem to have asked in, in the conferences or, or we're setting up for discussions on a particular platform, they have a set series of pad answers. And I refuse to believe those tautologies are going to be the maxims by which we live and that they're going to be the doctrine that we obey. I don't think that's right i think we have too many easy comfortable overused trite answers because it feels like that's what the audience wants to hear and it's a confirmation bias yeah. and i categorically we refuse don't. that yeah. it, and it, it can't we don't we don't deserve that we deserve to see an entirely complex issue from as many different angles as we possibly can as quickly as we possibly can to recognize that we don't know we don't know the answer and that's that's the whole point we don't have We don't have the answers, we're still experimenting, we're still trying to figure this out, but we can't, we cannot claim that we do. That's that's fundamentally wrong. So the whole point of that orchestration is to attack it from as many different angles and sides and to ask each of those panelists to think about it from all directions. You don't have a chance to actually stay on one side of the argument, you have to be able to argue both. And I think that's critical because we want people in the position to influence or to make those decisions to really understand the robustness of both sides of the argument and that they don't go in into this with a sense of surety that they actually have that sense of doubt and they acknowledge that doubt and that i have much more trust for somebody who says i doubt because i see so many complexities than i have for someone who tells me this is the answer it's like no mate it's not the answer don't don't blow smoke up my skirt I trust more when someone says I have doubt. And I think that's what we actually need to do is acknowledge that the more doubt we have, the more trust that we can actually start to to foster with others in the industry, the ecosystem itself, and with our own customers.
0: So ladies and gentlemen that's the millions and one reason why you want gala on your stage and at your event. <laughs> Thank um, you. Of, <laughs> you're welcome. But speaking of of questions that we don't have answers. The other day someone else on Twitter, how will banking be like in 10 years? What's your take on it?
1: Oh man. Okay so it's i magic I, magic eight ball <laughs> I, I, mag, yeah and yeah. i
0: responded to him i said i don't know how it's going to be like but i know exactly what it won't be like and i posted a picture of pepper
1: oh uh, well there you go see that what it won't be like what i would like it to be like i would like it to be more open and inclusive i would like to actually look at the hyper-personalized behaviors and inclinations of the individual and not um, have all of these models or risk models or assumptions about people and their credit worthiness or their probability of default be attached to an antiquated actuary table. I'd like it to reflect the real, the real merit of the individual. I think I would also like to see tokenization take over and if it's you know a security token or if it's um, some other form that, that we come up with that We start to actually commercialize on ideas before they go into production, that we create um, micro markets and multiplicity of secondary asset classes that allows us to actually benefit from the thinking that's going on, not just the commodities. And it's no longer the people that have control of the resources that are going to profit. But anybody who has a great idea is able to commercialize that irrespective of where you come from or what your education level is or who you are as an individual, that there's an opportunity to commercialize on the intellectual prowess and power that is the human mind, and for us to be able to do those those transactions and calculations in a way that we don't necessarily have to have a trust framework that we can do it because we know the framework itself is actually going to to facilitate it. That'll be honest. Will be transparent. That'll be compliant, and that we have an opportunity to commercialize on who we are. That we we are our own best banks. And if we talk about banking, what banking is actually supposed to be, it's about you know making money on credit. And we have credit, and it's intellectual credit, and it's behavioral credit, and it's this data. I'd like for end customers, I'd like for the individual to actually know that the moment they choose to let somebody know more about them, their preferences, their likes, their Facebook habits, um, the way they shop at the grocery store, you know, when they choose to have coffee in the morning, what time they turn out the light at night, that all of that information and that insight that helps them find the right products to make their lives better, or that they're able to facilitate um, a better life for their family, that the moment they choose to share that with another party, that there's a recognized value there and that who they are actually becomes um, a value generator for them commercially. And that in a way also means that there's better and more equal access to financial services because I don't care if you're growing up on the plains of sub-Saharan Africa or if you're you know, studying in the universities in, in St. Petersburg or you're sitting on Caltech's green lawn you know, having a doobie, or you're in the middle of Singapore and you're, you're tending to, to, to the gardens. I don't care. You have value and you should be able to have a baseline value acknowledgement for that. And in a certain way, it probably sounds like an advocate for universal basic income. And I think that absolutely, yes. If we look at data and digitization and the data economy, that there is a universal basic income and it's us and it's the privacy around which we have that, that sits around our behavioral data and our thoughts and our feelings and our desires and our wants and we should be able to commercialize on that and that's what i want to see banking be in the next 10 years
2: well, that's the thing it's like you know if you if you think about ubi and you transfer it to the way that we're giving away our information and what companies are making money on it then i think we're talking about a lot more than a thousand dollars a month to every individual on this planet um, Bingo. there are hundreds, Bingo. Of hundreds of thousands of companies that are making money on us every single day and uh, that needs to change and if banks can be part of that then fantastic and so,
1: Amen, Amen, can we have this? Can we put this out? Can we, can we put some decree? Amen? Can
2: we just, yes There's
1: like a, a, a papal decree <laughs> this is this is the truth, this is the way it should be it's true, we disrespect the value of individuals and I find that absolutely abhorrent and we need to change that and I think the industry is in a position to do just that
2: Well, and, you know, when we find like-minded people that want to make banking better and make banking different and make banking have a better, you know, sort of value proposition where it goes both ways, um, because you have to give when you get and you have to get when you give. And so the world should be like this. Um, You and I have had a lot of discussions about sharing thoughts and not just being on stage, but writing and speaking more. And, you know, this idea of writing uh, a book is one thing, but we also are influenced by a lot of what we read. Um, so what, do you, what are you reading? What, what's influencing you right now?
1: Well, aside from the fact that I'm completely obsessed with Laurie R. King's um, Sherlock series, which is about an incredible um, woman who partners with Sherlock after he's retired, and it's a series of logic and mystery uncovering with a strong female character. <laughs> um I'm in the middle of uh, my nonfiction read, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. And that, it's terrified me. It's the toothpaste out of the tube. And for all my desires around commercializing the individual's data for the individual, it's a lot to overcome and it does talk about this this notion of uh, the capitalist structure and the application layer owners, the corporations that control and have been making money off of this forever, the engineering, the social engineering. Part of the discussion around UX and UI is very much a social engineering conversation and we're taking away conscious choice for a lot of things. Talk about removing friction from the experience, which we think is a great thing, actually, and my mind is a dangerous thing because it removes that notion of informed consent. And in surveillance capitalism, we're finding that that's just the case, you know, it's this unconscious, um, this unconscious movement to the next step or through a process that has been designed to to, to get a a particular outcome from us, whether or not it's in our best benefit. And Zuboff has really got me thinking. and there's a lot to do with privacy and identity, but it's also a lot about the commercial model and how we change that. And what does uh, what does the next Internet 2.0 look like? What are protocol layers? What are what are these things that um, that become a common uh, protocol that we can build off of, but that we don't concentrate the capital or the commercial choice in the hands of a few single corporations? And I speak of Gafa um, in this case, although you know, I'm a user of part of GAFA. Um, but it's that it's that same thing. So Zuboff, man, it's terrifying. It's also enlightening. And it's a dense read. But The Age of Surveillance Capitalism is my post-summer nonfiction book.
2: We, we just uh, finished New Dark Age by James Bridle. And we did a podcast on that and kind of talked about um, sort of the way that he looks at where things can go and you know, it's, it's, it's nice to think that we could be optimistic, um, but given the last, you know, 10 to 15 years and the way that mm-hmm. technology has sort of embedded itself into our every minute, uh, it, it will be interesting to see where it goes. But I think, uh, if anything, we need to be more awakened to uh, the challenges that we currently face.
1: Yeah, I, I would love to say it should be a mandatory reading for everybody, but I know these things are not accessible. They're also really uncomfortable to read, but man, we do need to be uncomfortable. We need to get something lighting the fire under our keysters right? We Absolutely. need to, we need us. And quite frankly, you know, my favorite quote of all time is revelation is more perilous than revolution. And Nabokov was right. We need our eyes opened. And that's what sparks the change. I think this This living with blinders on, um, with this obsession with being entertained or diverted all of the time, of um, kind of walking around with some blinders on. I I don't like to be uncomfortable, but I prefer that to being blissfully ignorant. And I kind of wish we had a, a we put more social value on discomfort. And these are the books that that are doing it. But I wish it was. I wish it was. I wish more people would. Would be okay with discomfort.
0: I think that's the next book we need to put on our show, Brad, to to take a look at that. The other one I, I would say it was a little uncomfortable, and it was a long read. Was Invisible Women, but mm. we'll save that for the next one. <laughs> I, I, I became a raging feminist.
1: <laughs> we can't. We we can't start in on that topic. I just I. Yeah, we can't, it's a long, it's a long descent into Dante's Inferno. I get so-
2: but you know what, what I could already see here is that Gela uh is going to have to come back as our first second guest. Uh, on- <gasps> it's very, very obvious that that honor needs to be just bestowed down the line. Because we can- oh, talk-
1: not Goodness! All right, I'm down. I listen. I will. I will talk with you two of you any day of the week and twice on Sundays. You know that. The fact that we're recording it and other people get to eavesdrop, I'm okay. I'm okay with that. But you know, I'll talk to you anytime. And so I'm like, just photos. do a
2: weekly one. Weekly one,
1: dude. I'm down with that. My schedule will certainly accommodate it
2: excellent wherever, wherever you are in the world
1: whatever
0: you are we would love to have you back so oh. i think we're good thank you so much for joining us for the first episode gala can i call you the Goddess for change
1: i like oh that. ggc right? something like that. i could, we could brand this i like it oh you guys i that love you <laughs> i love you, you
0: too <laughs> and thank you all for listening in our first ever guest on the show the other 50 hope you join us in the next week thank you gala thank
1: you